Hey, well, good morning, everyone, once again. All right, I just need to warn you from the, on, from the onset that we are going to cover a lot of ground this morning, and it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. So some mornings you get up here and you're like, I know exactly what I'm going to say. And sometimes you get up here and you think, I've got way too much to say. I wonder what I'm going to end up getting to say and what I'm going to have to leave out. That's one of these mornings. So we'll, we'll, we'll just kind of play it by ear. It should be, should be exciting. Or, or something. So anyways, I want us to start off, if you just, just open up your Bible, or I'm going to have the, the passages up here on the screen too, but if you want to follow along in, in the Bible or on your, on your phone or whatever, open up to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, and we're going to jump right into it. As y'all turn there or get, get prepared to be there, uh, let me ask you a question that kind of uh, fits with what we talked about a little bit last week. And the question is this, it's kind of a big question, and sometimes we don't give a lot of thought to it because it just seems like a given. You just do it because you're, you're supposed to. But I want you to think about why you do this. Here's the question. Why, if you're a Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you trust in him alone for a relation with God. If you're a Christian, why do you obey God? Why obey God? Think about it. Why do you obey God? I'm not going to ask you to answer. But give it a thought. Sometimes we, we don't really give a, that a whole lot of thought. We just kind of, you know, because we're supposed to or whatever, because he's God and I'm not. And those, that's a pretty good reason. But oftentimes, like I've spent some time thinking about this this past week as I prepared for this, and then I've thought about it before. Oftentimes, if I'm just honest with you, two of my default reasons to obey God boil down to because I want to avoid shame. Like I don't want to be like those people. I feel really bad saying that, but like that's oftentimes a, a reason. Or because I want to avoid punishment. I don't want God to get me. And I feel like if I sin, if I don't obey, then he's going to get me. And so I want to either avoid shame, I don't want to be like those people, or I want to avoid punishment. It's either pride or fear that often motivates me to obey God. I'm, I don't know. Maybe I'm alone. I kind of hope I am because those aren't good reasons. But, but I found that that's not, I'm not usually really alone in that. Those are kind of common of motivations to obey God. But here's the problem with those. If you think about it, the, the idea of wanting to avoid shame is, as a motivation to boy, uh, obey God. The problem with, one of the problems with that is that it, is it uh, builds this animosity or the sense of superiority between you and those people, which leads to all kinds of conflict. And it's really a lot of the ugliness that's found in the church today. If a lot of Christians only obey God because they don't want to be like those people, then it makes sense that Christians are seen as judgmental people, right? And that, that is not what God intends. It's ugly. It's really ugly. Now, also, if I only obey God because I don't want punishment, then what does that do with my relationship with God? Well, oftentimes it kind of kills any kind of intimacy with your relationship with God. If you're only out to, to make sure that you think he's always like looking out over your shoulder to get you, and, you only th- and when you mess up, you think that he's out to get you, then when you mess up, you will run from him instead of run to him. And if you're not messing up and he blesses you, you won't have any joy in that blessing because you'll think, of course he's going to bless me. I'm a pretty good person. He's just giving me what I deserve. So it kills joy and it kills intimacy if that's the reason that you're obeying God is to avoid punishment. Man, that's, that's not good. It hurts your relationship with God, hurts your relationship with others. And yet, this is the crazy part, it leads to good behavior. Like you're obeying God. You're just doing it for these motivations. The activity is still right. 
but it leads to all this ugliness, this, this conflict with people, this lack of intimacy and joy with God. Like I think one of the, one of the things we're going to look at today talks about avoiding sexual immorality. Like for me, one of the reasons that I would want to avoid sexual immorality is because I don't want to be like all of those other pastors who have sinned and messed up sexually and brought, you know, just been disgraced and have all this shame. And so that, that can motivate me to do that. And yet, what does that do? Like, that's just, what do I think about myself? I'm like, oh, I'm, look at me. I'm doing all this good stuff. And look at those people. And it's just, I mean, it's just ugly. It's just not, not good. Or I, or I think, man, God's going to get me if I mess up. Like, I bet you if I, if I sin, like if I start looking at porn, I bet you, I bet you God's going to make a way for that, me to be found out. Because he's going to get me. And I'm going to be punished for that. And like, that causes me. But that, again, what does that do for my relationship with God? It just, is that? We're thinking about. Here's the, here's the other thing about those motivations. Even though not only do they hurt my relation with others and my relation with God, but they're also anti-gospel. So what I mean by that is the, the gospel is the, the core, the essence of the Christian faith. That it's the it's the belief that really you can boil down to two things: that um, I'm and you are such a sinner. You're so messed up that you needed God to die for you. And then the other statement is, but you're also, and I'm also, so loved that God willingly chose to die for you. Now think about these two statements, the essence of Christian faith. How do those counteract our common motivations to obey God, avoiding shame and avoiding punishment? Well, the gospel actually says, no, to to enter into a relation with God and to enjoy the relation God wants to have with you and that you are built to have with him, you have to not seek to avoid shame. You have to lean into your shame. You have to embrace that you have shame. You have to freely admit that you are a sinner, that you, that you have offended God, that you were in such, in fact, in such huge offense that it required the death of God to have your sins forgiven. And so the gospel invites you not to avoid sin, but to lean in, avoid shame, but to lean into your shame, admitting your need, which humbles us, levels the playing field. Now we have no grounds to look down on other people because we are those people. <laughs> and so we say we're all the same. We, we all need Jesus. The gospel, on the other hand, also tells us that we have avoided punishment. We have avoided punishment, the ultimate punishment, that, that Jesus loved us so much that he did die for us, that, the God, that God's, the punishment that we deserve was poured out on Jesus. And therefore, we will never be under the wrath of God because Jesus took the wrath of God for us. Even though he never messed up, we were the ones who messed up. But he loved us so much that he took our spot. Now, this, this is amazing. But it completely kills our motivations, our common motivations to obey God. We, should we obey because we want to avoid shame? No, we've got to lean into our shame. Do we obey because we want to avoid punishment? No, because Jesus already took our punishment. So what, what does that leave us? What, what, motiv, what will motivate the believer to obey God? Well, that's the passage that we're going to get in today. 
to today. So that's a, we'll have some fun with that. In fact, Paul just lays it out for us in the first two verses of chapter 5. And uh, he's been saying this throughout the entire book of Ephesians. The whole book of Ephesians is really laid out and summarized in chapters 5, verses 1 and 2. And so I'm not going to recap what we've been studying so far uh, for you, other than just read these two verses. And uh, this is what Paul's been saying. So verse 1, he says this, Ephesians chapter 5, Therefore be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a, and a sacrifice to God. Okay, a couple of things to draw out for us here. Very first statement, incredible call to obedience, is it not? What's he say? Be imitators of God. I don't think that you find a more like intimidating sentence in all of scripture than that one right there. Be imitators of God. So like what? So do exactly what God would do? Uh-huh. And, and don't do anything that God wouldn't do? Yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. That's what you ought to be as a Christian. You imitate God. You do exactly what God would do. Don't do anything God wouldn't do. Okay, okay. How? How do we do that? Why would we do that? That's the question. Why would we obey God? Notice what he says. As beloved children. Now, there's something really important here. He doesn't say, in order to be beloved children. He says, as beloved children. Again, this is the whole message of the book of Ephesians, that God in Christ makes us someone new. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, forgiveness of your sins, immediately you become someone new. You are no longer who you used to be, and you are now who you never once were. You are a new creation. You go from being a sinner to a saint. You go from being unreconciled to God to reconciled to God, fully forgiven. You go from being outside of the family of God to being actually adopted into the family of God. You are the beloved child of God. And as a result of who you are, you want to obey. Now, that's a big statement, but because that's, that is Paul's point here. Why should you obey God? Because it's in line with who you are if you are in Christ. That's why. It's not the only reason why, but that's a huge reason why. Why obey? Because it's who you are in Christ. You want to obey because you've been adopted into the family of God. When Krista and I adopted our son Enoch, um, we, the way that that worked is we did not go to the orphanage and watch all the kids and, see, and just pick the one that was the most like us. We didn't do that. And it's okay if you do that, but that's not how ours worked. We, we went and we, we looked. Uh, uh, the, we didn't go and look, find the one that was much, most like us. Instead, the way that it worked for us in this adoption process was that we worked with an agency for over a year, jumping through all kinds of legal hoops and paying all kinds of money in order to be matched with the child that they matched us with. And they sent us a picture of Enoch after a year of preparing to be able to bring him into our home. And that picture of Enoch, I think it's the first time, and maybe the only time, sadly, that I felt a real sense of unconditional love. Because I had never met this kid. And yet I look at his picture and I think, I love him. I love him. This is the one that I've been loving for over a year now, pursuing, and I didn't even know what he looked like or his name. Now I have his name, and I know what he looks like, and that's my boy. And we went to Uganda. We adopted him. We brought him back to our family. He became a box. He was my beloved child. 
Now, what's happened since then over the last two and a half years? Well, he's becoming a, a lot like me. And we, we're beginning to look exactly like each other. No, just kidding. <laughs> no, but he, he loves a lot of things that I love. His personality is beginning to be reflected. In, like my personality is beginning to be reflected in his personality. The jokes he tells are similar to the jokes that I tell. The things that he loves are similar to things that I love. He's an Aggie now, <laughs> which is awesome. He loves basketball. He loves football. He's becoming like me. Now, what happened first? My beloved child. And now he's becoming like me. And guys, that's how it works for us in Christ. We are adopted into the family of God. We become beloved children of God. That's who we are. And as a result, this is who we become. Obeying God, being imitators of God, flows naturally as a result of who we are. Who we are determines what we do. Now, yes, we have a sin nature, and that part still wants us to live different than God, but the true nature, who you really are in Christ, it wants to, the reason you obey is because it's who you are. That's the first thing. Verse 2 says it this way. It says, uh, at, and walk in love, and you'll see throughout this passage the word walk used over and over again. In fact, he, Paul does that starting in chapter 4. And walk is just a metaphor for live, but it implies direction. So it's a helpful metaphor. It says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And here you see the second huge reason why we would ever obey God. Why obey him? Because in response to how he's loved you. So you don't obey in order to be loved. We obey because we already are. We don't obey in order to be accepted. We obey because we already are. We don't obey motivated out of fear or pride. We, we obey motivated out of the love that we've been la- that's been lavished upon us in Jesus Christ. Now, this love, this motivation, it's scary. If you think about it, if what was motivating us to love God and therefore obey him is how much God has loved us, then what kind of love does God deserve in light of the love that he's loved us with? That Christ gave himself up for us. It's a fragrant offering, sacrifice to God. If, if God would give himself up for us, then does he not deserve us to give our entire lives to him? That's, that's a bigger deal than just saying, well, I, I'm going to just check these boxes. I'm going to make sure I'm not doing this or I am doing this. It's God have all of me because you've given me all of you. But it's a response. It's a response to the fact that he's given us all of him. 1 John 4, 19, we love not because uh, or if love is this, that we, uh, because Christ loved us, that's why we love God. Not that we love God first, but that he loved us, gave himself up for us. So man, in light of that, our response is love. Now love, guys, as we said last week, the way, the ultimate way, the primary way we speak love to God is through obeying God. The primary way we communicate love to God isn't just by saying, God, I love you. So that's a great thing to do. It's not just by singing songs to God. Though that's a great thing to do. But it's ultimately, the primary way is by obeying God. Jesus makes that really clear. John chapter 14, 21, 23, 24. If you love me, you will obey my commands. And so we say, okay, God, in light of how you've loved me, 
And as a result of who I am in you, I now move to obey you as a way to love you. Does that make sense? Okay, that's a very long intro. But the rest of these things, we'll read them and we can do the right behavior for the wrong reasons. And it will mess up our relationship with one another and will mess up our relationship with God. Or we can do the right things for the right reasons and as a result of who we are and a response to how we've been loved and we really honor God and it brings love to one another. So we can't miss that. That's why those two verses are so important. Now, I'm going to fly through the rest of this and I'm going to be really high level and there's plenty here to talk about and I'd love to talk to you more about it later. I prepared a message that I could preach for four hours. I'm not going to do that today. So, uh, though I have been known to go long almost every week, but I'm going to try not to do four hours today. So I'm just going to fly through this. But guys, in context, what he moves into next, in fact, the flow of what I'm going to hit on next is that in, in, as a result of who we are in Christ and a response to how we've been loved in Christ, we are to walk in love, we're to walk in light or walk as light, and we are to walk in wisdom. And let me show you what he says. I'll just take each section at a time. Verse 3 he says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not, be, uh, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. That there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Okay, let me stop there. These are some very practical steps, very practical behaviors that he ties to walking in love. So when we live this way, we are showing God that we love him by obeying him and we're loving one another by not participating in these behaviors. What are the behaviors? Sexual immorality, covetousness, or you could say greed, or filthy and foolish talk. Ouch, right? I mean, how many of us are not guilty of all of those things, at least at some point of our lives, and many times just like earlier this morning, if it's the foolish talk or the the crude talk, that kind of stuff. Like, man, okay, now that's love for God? That's love for God to not do that stuff? Why is that love? Well, I could spend lots of time talking about that, but I want you to think about it. Why is that love? I mean, think about Sexual immorality, which specifically the word there is fornication, which is any sexual activity that takes place outside of a marriage relationship. That's what it literally means. Well, God gave us sex to be enjoyed within marriage. He designed it, and that's one of the reasons he's awesome. And, uh, but the reason that it de- was designed to happen within a marriage relationship is because sex is an act that is the bearing of oneself it was supposed to be accompanied with, the whole, with all you are. The terminology in the Bible talks about becoming one with someone, but it's not just physically becoming one. But it's also that emotionally, economically, fully relationally, you're one with them. That only happens fully within a marriage relationship. To do any, anything less than that is to be, according to the Bible, self-serving. But true love in the Bible is self-sacrifice. Jesus, Jesus says, Paul says, 
that true love is this, that a, a friend would lay down his life for another. There's no greater love than that. Well, that, that's the great example of love, and true love is self-sacrifice. But when you uh, participate in sexual activity outside of marriage, according to the Bible, you're using that person, or you're not giving them all that you're supposed to be giving them when you give them your body. And that is a lack of love. It's not full self-sacrifice. It dishonors them, and it dishonors God. There's a lot more to be said on that, but that's why it's love. Now, think about greed. Greed is wanting what other people have, or coveting, wanting what other people have. He ties coveting to idolatry in this passage. So it's a huge offense to God, just, not just that you would uh, covet, but that you would covet against uh, saying that this thing that you want is, is going to satisfy you, which is why you want it. You think it's going to satisfy you more than what God says and God has to offer. And so you go after that. That's idolatry. It's coveting. It does not show love to people. It says, I want what you have instead of being thankful that they have it. Foolish talk, coarse joking, all those things, you just, those, those erode things that God's made that are beautiful and important. And you could go on and on about that and how it works, how that works, but that's not love. It's not love to God. It's not love to one another. What's interesting to me is that he holds up these two things, these primary things, like sexual talk and sexual activity outside of marriage and greed, you think, why those two, Paul? And I'm not exactly sure. My guess is that in the church of Ephesus, those were common practices, and he's calling them out on it. But I also think that they kind of span the totality of, of the moral law of God. Because just think about it. When you think about even just the churches in America, how many churches in America are really known for really thinking that, thinking that what God has to say about sex in the Bible is obsolete? And I just say, that's not really important. And yet those same churches really seem to be often known for being anti-greed and calling people out for coveting and being all about, uh, being all against, all, uh, very much against injustice and oppression. And yet other churches in America are often known for really making a huge deal out of what God says about sexual immorality and like, like making that kind of the main thing they're known for. And yet those churches oftentimes seem to turn a blind eye to greed and coveting and oppression and injustice. What's that point out? What, what, what do we take from that? Well, the only thing I can point out from that is just that it seems like these are two things that are really hard to hold on to at the same time. It's like the totality of the moral law of God. It's the idea of being the image bearers of God, to be imitators of God. That's hard to do, and yet God calls us to do both. How do we love him? How do we walk in love? We abandon sin. Guys, when it comes to greed and materialism and oppression and injustice, how are you doing? How are you doing? You're always wanting more. You're always wanting what the next person has. In our entire, our entire like, marketing and entertainment of our culture is built on these two things, right? Coveting and sexual immorality. It's so easy for it to seep into our lives. How are you doing? We walk in love both towards God and others by abandoning sin. When it comes to sexual immorality, how are you doing? I encourage you, if, if, if those things are present in your life, Repent. Strong biblical church word, but really repent just means change your mind and say, that's not what I want to be about. 
That's not where life is found. I'm choosing to love God by obeying God in those areas. He moves on. He says this, um, starting in verse 6, I believe. Uh, No, 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Okay, this is strong language here. Basically, the way I'd sum it up is that we walk in love by not making light of sin. The first thing is that we walk in love by abandoning sin. The second part of it is that we, we don't make light of sin. And what Paul seems to be saying, and use, you can tell from the language uh, that he uses here, is that it seems like he's, he's calling the church of Ephesus out on their treatment of sin. And perhaps there were some lies that had crept up into the church of that day and age that were saying, hey, sexual sin and coveting, not really that big of a deal. And in fact, in our church today, or the church today, when it comes to the main question that I asked this a second ago, why obey God? One answer that is prevalent is we don't really have to because of what Jesus did for us. He died. He took the punishment of all my sins, and so I can live any way I really want to live. I don't have to obey God and still have my sins forgiven. And, guys, that's, that's true. Jesus died for your sins, all of them, paid for all of them. And yet... That idea is tied to you only obey God if you're afraid of punishment, not if you obey God in light of how he's loved you and in light of who you are. And what he's saying to the church in Ephesus is that these sins, he says, let me assure you, they're a big deal. Do not be deceived. Don't have anything to do with it. For this, the wrath of God has come on sons of disobedience. Now, just a real clear interpretation issue here. It can read, and you might, might think that this reads to say that if you've committed these kind of sins, then you have no part in the kingdom of heaven and God's wrath is coming upon you. That's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying if you're a Christian, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for forgiveness of sins, you should not be a part of the activity of those that do not believe that. And right now, because they don't believe, they're not covered in the blood of Christ, then they are not citizens of heaven, and they have the wrath of God upon them. Now, if you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, then let me tell you, this is a very good reason why you ought to. And just just not to be lighthearted about it, but just to say, guys, sin has consequence. And God is a sovereign God, and he is a judging God that he has called us to be imitators of him. And when we fall short of the glory of God, as Romans 3, 23 says, we suffer punishment, condemnation. But because God loves us so much, he doesn't want any of us to be separated from him. So he found a way to fully satisfy his law and his love on the cross in the person of Jesus. Jesus died in our place for our sins so that we don't have to. And my encouragement to you is to believe that and find forgiveness in Christ and find the motivation to obey God in light of the love that he's given us in Jesus. But for those of you who do believe that, 
then what we say is, in light of that, that kind of judgment is coming on people because of those sins, even though that kind of judgment's not coming on you because it came on Christ, don't dare begin to believe that it's not a big deal to God if you're committing sexual immorality or foolish talking or coveting or any other of the laws of God. It's a big deal, so don't make light of it. And again, I must ask you guys, if it's present in your life, will you confess? Will you turn from that? Will you say, God, I, I realize this is a big deal to you. It's for this that Jesus died. And would you let the fact that Jesus did die for you move you to want to obey God in these areas? The... Uh, he lists six vices in these, these chapters, in this, in this uh, few verses I just walked through. He lists one virtue, and that one virtue is thanksgiving. And guys, that's it, isn't it? See, when you're living a thankful life in light of what Jesus did for you, then you choose to obey him and be an imitator of God. When you're, when you're not thinking about yourself, and you're not thinking about what someone else has that you wish you had, or you're not even thinking real practically here about how you could say that one inappropriate thing that's going to make everyone laugh and think you're such a funny person, but you're thinking about what Jesus did for you, then you're thankful. And it leads to obedience, because what you're thankful for is his great love and who he's made you to be. And in light of who you are and in light of how you've been loved, let us love God by obeying God. Let us walk in love. Then he moves on. He says, let's walk as light. In verse uh, 9, or verse 8, he's, uh, <laughs> verse 7, here we go. He says, therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and tr- and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, "Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you." Okay, let me stop there. Here's here's what he's saying. We are to walk as light. Now, how can we do that? Because of what he says in verse 8, a really powerful verse. He says, For at one time time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And he uses identity statements here. You once were darkness. That's That's a strong statement. But now he says, You are now light. Why are you light? Because you've done something good? No, because you're connected to Christ. You're light in the Lord. Pay attention to the prepositional phrase. Don't, don't lose that or you'll get, you'll get prideful. But it's only because of what Christ has done for us and who he's made us into. Now you are a new person. And so you can walk as light because you are light. Now what is light? He tells us in the next verse, verse 9, it's light, the fruit of light is found in all that is good, right, and true. It's, it's someone who's an imitator of God. That's a, big, that's a big deal, right? But we can only do that because of who Christ has made us to be. How does that work? 
Well, that's what this whole series has been like. I've been talking about since the beginning of Ephesians. But just as a, a, a brief recap, guess it's it's like this. It's like it's like a, if there was a, a poor and plain girl who didn't have any money and was not very attractive, but for some reason, a great prince sees this a little bit fairy tale esque. Hang in, hang with me. Great prince sees the girl and falls in love with her. And ask her to be his bride. And that on their wedding day, they stand before the entire place, all the crowds, all the citizens, and they commit each other, commit themselves to one another. And in the exchanging of vows, she goes from, and what before she said it, from being poor and plain. And then what she's connected to him through the exchanging of vows she becomes completely rich and beautiful in his love. And that all that he had is now legally hers, and he's clothed in all that he has to offer. Because that's not unlike what happened to us in Christ. It's really a dim illustration of it, but it's helpful. That we were darkness, and in our old selves we still are. But in Christ, when we've been committed to him, when we said our vows, when we said, God, would you, uh, would you forgive me of my sins? I trust in Christ alone for my forgiveness. At that moment, we're united in Christ. And the beauty of Christ, we're clothed in it. And the righteousness of Christ, we're clothed in it. And we are now in him all that is true and right, and good. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is, and we are found in him. And as a result of that, we can live godly lives as imitators of God. And we are to do that around those who have yet to believe. See, we walk in light, but how do we walk in light? How should we walk in light? Well, we walk in light by one first thing is by finding or trying to figure out to discern how to please God. And then by tr- pleasing God in the dark. What I mean by that in verse 10, he says this. In verse 10, he says, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And guys, that verse right there has probably stuck with me more than any other verse this whole week as I've been studying this, because this verse kills checkbox relationship with God, doesn't it? I got, I'm just going to, I'm just going to check, keep the moral law. I'm just going to, I'm not going to do that, do that. Yeah, I am going to do this. I've done that, I've done that. But here, here Paul says, no, no, as, as a walk in the light, as, a, as the light by saying, look, I'm going to try to figure out. I'm going to try to discern how to please God. In my relationship with Krista, if she gives me a list of things to do, and I do them, she'll feel loved. She'll appreciate it. But if I take that, that checklist and then I put thought into it, how can I go above and beyond? How can I really show that I love her? Then, man, does that not really please her? Absolutely. Guys, God's say, saying the same thing. In light of how we've been loved, let us love. Well, God's loved us with all he is. Let us love him with all that we are. 
Let us discern. Let us try to figure out how we can love him. And then where do we do that? We do that around those who don't love him yet. Verse 7, he says this. He says, therefore, do not become partners with them. And now this is a, I want to go to this verse for interpretation purposes because many people take this and then the other thing he says in this passage about exposing sin and they say, look, we're not supposed to have anything to do with non-Christians. And if we do have anything to do with them, what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to be always pointing out their sin in their life. And let me just say, that's absolutely not what Paul is saying in this passage. What he is saying is don't partner with them in the sense of don't be about the things that they're about. If what they're about is sin, don't be about that. But he's not saying don't be friends with them. In fact, he's saying we should be very close to them. In these verses, in verses uh, 11, he says, uh, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Here's what this means, friends. It means that we are to walk as, as light, as we let Christ live out his life through us, and we're to do that around those that uh, do not love God so that as they see how we live, they are exposed to what, everything that is true and right and good. They're really exposed to Jesus in us, and it causes them to take notice. They're exposed to the light. We're not shining the light on their life and calling them out for their sins. We're, we're being a light in their, present, in their presence, and they're drawn to it. And that happens. Chris and I have some good friends right now that they, one of the things, reasons that we're friends with them is because they, uh, they really like me and Chris's marriage, which is like we don't have the most perfect marriage in the world, but we have a good marriage. We, we really love each other. And that's saying a lot since she's having to love me, and that's not easy to do. But we, we, we have these friends that they don't believe what we believe. But they really like being around us. And in fact, they, are, they ask us for marriage advice all the time. And they, we, in those conversations, we get to tell them not only what we do, but why we do it, which is tied to the gospel. And in those conversations, we are letting God say through us, hey, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead. Let Christ's light shine upon you. Friends, are you walking in the light? You walk in as you are, and are you doing it around those that don't believe yet so that they would have an opportunity to be drawn in? That's one of the ways we love God in response to how he has loved us. The last thing I'm going to say, and this is going to be super brief, but uh, I'm, I was going to go through 21. I'm going to stop at se- after 17, so let me just read it. It says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Basically, Paul's last command to us here, as a result of who we are in Christ and in response to how we've been loved in Christ, is that we are to walk in wisdom. That we are to be careful how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Again, this is tied to verse 10. Let us discern how to please God. See, guys, if you've been around the Christian faith for very long, you know that there are tons of moral laws that we are to keep as a way to obey God, as a way to love God. 
And yet, even in the midst of all of those moral laws, there's still about 70% of life that seems to not even come, uh, that those moral laws don't even seem to speak to. And those seems like some of the biggest decisions of life, like who should I marry and where should I live and what job should I take? And I mean, there's aspects, you can find careers that completely conflict with God's moral law, but there's a whole lot that you have a lot of freedom with. How do you know what to do? Well, God says, you're to walk wisely. There's a way to please him by being wise in those decisions and not just be, being foolish. So try to discern how to please God. How do we make wise decisions? Well, that's, that's questions worthy of a sermon series. <laughs> but in this passage, simply put, how do we make wise decisions? Two things. Pay attention to not just how you're walking, are you walking in obedience, but where you're walking. See, to walk wisely implies you're headed in a direction. And you have to ask, why are you headed there? And what, where is there? And a lot of the behaviors that you take along the way can be completely moral. But if the reason you're doing what you're doing is not for the glory of God and to honor him, then you need to call into question how wise it is, because it's not wise. If you have a job where you're making a whole lot of money, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. Personally, I think there's a lot to be applauded with that. However, if the reason that you're in that job to make a lot of money is because all you care about or what you're really after is the approval of men, they would think that you're somebody because of how much money you're making. Or if you're doing it because you find your security in money, and so you have to have a lot of it. Well, guys, those are foolish reasons. And what you would want to do is submit those motives to God and say, God, what should I do? Now, you could still make a lot of money for good reasons and say, hey, I'm using this because I'm using the gifts God's given me and I'm working hard for his glory. And that just happens that money comes as a result. Well, that's, that's great. Or if you're saying I'm making a lot of money because I want to have a lot to give to the kingdom, to give to those, those that don't have as much as I have, then that's, that's great. Check your motives, though. Your motives are a way to know if you're walking wisely. The other thing is, is to not just know your motives, but to know the time. In the passage says, the days are evil. Right before it, it uses this phrase, making every opportunity. And literally it is to redeem the time, to buy back the time. In light of the time, in light of that, our life here, guys, on earth is short, but it matters. In light of that, we have something to do for the kingdom of God. Let us make sure that where our time is going is the best, most strategic, wisest use of your time in light of what matters and what time you have. So know the time and know your motives and you walk wisely. Again, much more could be said about that, but I'll spare it for you today. Here's Here's the big, kind of wrap all this up. Because there's a lot there to chew on, isn't there? But guys, first and foremost, let us remember how Christ has loved us. See, be imitators of God. Yes, do those things. Don't do those other things. But do that as beloved children. Live a life of love. Walk in love, walk as light, walk in wisdom. Live a life of love. 
Not in order that Christ would love you, but because Christ loved you and gave himself up for you as an atoning sacrifice for your sins. In light of how he's loved us, let us respond in love. And friends, one of the ways you do that is you evaluate your life and you say, am I loving you, God, with how I'm living? And you make every effort, you try to discern how to please God. Let me pray. Father, God, I pray that you would help us know what to do with what you've been saying to us today. I pray, Lord, if I said anything that you didn't want me to say, that you would (laughs) help us not get caught up on that. Uh, But, Lord, that you would just speak real clearly on this. God, I pray that in the midst of it, there would be joy, that there wouldn't be, we wouldn't be burdened by all of these things that we are to do and not to do and all the ways we're supposed to walk. But God, that what would really be fueling us is that how you have loved us, Jesus. And Lord, in light of how you've loved us and who you've made us into, that we would see this as, as a, a clear way to respond with love. And Lord, I pray that that would happen. For your glory, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.